Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I'm joined by Rutger Bregman, historian, author of Utopia for Realists and Humankind, and scourge of the tax-avoiding corporate elite at Davos. This week, Rutger and I discuss some of the issues raised by his most recent and absolutely brilliant book, Humankind including whether human beings are more cooperative or competitive by nature, how capitalism warps our behaviour, and why you shouldn't watch the news. As always, a shout out to our amazing patrons. Your support is critical for covering the costs of producing the podcast. Without your help, we wouldn't be able to continue to bring you these interviews with such amazing guests. If you've been considering becoming a patron for a while now, but haven't gotten around to it, please consider doing so now. Just hit pause and head over to patreon.com slash a world to win pod. That's patreon.com slash a world to win pod. Or just check the show notes for a link. If you become a patron, you'll get access to exclusive content, including the full hour long episode this week and full length interviews with figures like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornell West, as well as a chance to influence the future direction of the show and exclusive offers on merch, my forthcoming books and subscriptions to Tribune. If you want to support the show in another way, please do give us a rating on iTunes to keep us in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. A big thank you to the Lippmann Miliband Trust for awarding us the grant funding we've needed to bring you these first episodes. You can follow them on Twitter at Lippmann Miliband. And another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers who have let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. Now, here is Rutger Bregman on why he doesn't follow the 24-hour news cycle and why you shouldn't either. Hello, Rutger Bregman, and thank you so much for joining me on A World to Win. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Grace. Um, so we usually start the show by talking about a couple of news stories that mm. uh, we want to discuss. But I know from reading your book um, that you do not follow the 24-hour news cycle. And that's actually, funnily enough, something that since reading your book and all the evidence in there about the impact on mental health, which hopefully we can talk about later, I've started doing as well. So I want to thank you for bringing that <laughs> to my attention. So I thought we'd start the interview just talking about current events generally this week starting with the impact of COVID-19 in the Netherlands, which is uh-huh. where you're based, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I live in Houten. It's a small town to the south of Utrecht. don't know if you've ever been there. Uh, I've been to Utrecht, yeah. Yeah, the second wave is really, really bad. So um, actually, I think we're one of the, the countries that are doing the worst in terms mm. of infections per uh, 100,000 people. So uh, we're, we're basically in the middle of... Uh, of a second lockdown. And the question is whether we'll have to go even further. I'm not sure. It's actually interesting because we have a, you know, we have a prime minister that's been saying for months that, you know, he doesn't really believe in a strong, powerful government saying what people should do and that mm. people should take their own responsibility. But then again, yeah, the question is whether that, <laughs> that really works in an emergency or in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, I feel like we've had some good evidence that it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But still, I mean, obviously, the Netherlands is a very rich country. So, you know, if you zoom out a little bit and put things in perspective, mm-hmm. you know, it's not the second world or anything. Um, so what kind of economic responses has the Dutch government put in place? And how do they compare to, say, what's been going on in the rest of Europe? Well, I'd say very similar. 
to uh, to other you know Nordic social democratic mm. countries. So basically, everything goes through companies. It's basically like the the freezing of the economy, right? People's mm. salaries are still being paid, and there are you know specific packages for restaurants, for example, etc. And there's mm. an eternal discussion: is it enough? But then again, if you just look at the spending, right? I, I'm I am old enough to remember the times when we were frustrated by a deficit of I don't know one or two percent. You know, when that mm. was enough for governments to fall. And now it's just billions and billions of euros that are being spent. And suddenly, you know, it seems it's possible and the money exists. We've mm. got a minister of finance that says, I'm, I'm willing to do whatever is necessary. You know, five or 10 years ago, that was absolutely unthinkable. Yeah, and I suppose there's been a, a similar response at um, the level of the European Union as well, with particularly the ECB trying to do a lot to kind of mitigate the impact. But do you think that enough is being done, particularly in terms of kind of distributing the economic impacts between wealthier and poorer states? The Netherlands is obviously one of the frugal four that is kind of pushing back against bigger stimulus measures being put in place. Yeah, probably. And, and, and probably. I mean, I've always believe that having a genuine European Union means a transfer of wealth from the north to the south. Mm. You know, you can't have a common currency without, you know, significant wealth transfers. That, that's just what it means. And actually, I think it's for the best of, of Nordic countries as well. They'll benefit if Spain and Italy and Greece will become richer and more prosperous because that means more customers, so mm. more money to make, etc. But this, this was what... What was so frustrating about the situation during the euro crisis, right, is that there was this bizarre ideology where they were <laughs> stamping countries like Greece in the face. You know, it's a little bit like mm -hmm. like stamping a beggar in the face and saying, why, why don't you give me more money? Why don't you give me more money? <laughs> Doesn't really work like that. But yeah. again, I mean, that seems like a long time ago, to be honest. I mean, five, six years ago, I was incredibly frustrated about the whole European project. But I think that the tide is really turning. And especially if you mm -hmm. look at things like climate change, you know, I have, to be honest, I've become more and more pro-Europe because I don't really mm -hmm. see where else the hope should come from. You know, if, even if, you, if you're frustrated with, you know, the agricultural policies of Europe and think that the Green Deal doesn't go far enough, well, it's way more ambitious than any other plan any other country is proposing, right? So it has yeah. to come out of Europe. We don't really have a have an option here, also because there's just the pressure of time. So in that sense, I've I've changed my mind quite a bit. Five years ago, I was like totally depressed about Europe, and mm -hmm. you know, I was one of the very few people in the Netherlands who was a fan of someone like Janis Varoufakis. <laughs> Everyone yeah. basically, uh, there was a. It's it's just incredible. I don't really believe in propaganda conspiracy or anything but if you look the way the dutch press was behaving you know and the way you know that greece and greek politicians were stereotyped it was just incredible absolutely incredible what was happening but again that seems like a long time ago now yeah um the other thing that's in the news obviously at the moment and you know is linked to this this massive existential threat of climate breakdown is the u.s elections Mm -hmm. um, so obviously, Joe Biden is trying to court those on the left by putting together what some people have, de have described as a quite ambitious climate plan. Are you optimistic uh, that he will be able to follow through on some of his promises? You know, there is there is a really hopeful story to tell about 
climate change policy in the Democratic Party, right? Uh, yeah. It shows us that activism works. If you look at what the Sunrise Movement has mm-hmm. done and what the Justice Democrats have done and politicians like AOC have done, it's uh, it's pretty incredible. I mean, Joe Biden's climate plans at first, they were totally depressing. You know, there were, there were pretty much mm. nothing. But then if you uh, look uh, what, what they're now, I mean, it's still not enough, but it's much, much better. And if you compare it to even Bernie Sanders' plan in 2016, I mean, Joe Biden is much more radical about climate change now than Bernie Sanders was in 2016. Now, obviously, mm. the science has radicalized as well, right? But then mm. again, we already knew quite a bit in 2016 about how bad the situation really was. So, um, so it's interesting to see this progress. And then if you, again, make the comparison with Europe, I, I always think it's fascinating is that Americans are way better at language. I mean, it's, mm. it's highly ironical that the European Union uses an American term you know, the New Deal to talk about yeah, their plans. They true. can't even, uh, they don't even have their own words, right? Mm-hmm. But if you look at the actual policies, for example, the U- European uh, emission trading system, which is, I mean, you can be very critical of that, but it is the largest system of pricing carbon in the world, right? And it seems to be working better and better in the last couple of years. The price of carbon is going up in Europe. It's still way not enough, but... You know, sometimes I have the feeling that Americans are really good at talking about being radical, about declaring war on climate change, about mobilizing, just like we mobilized during the Second World War. But if you look at what's actually happening, then these boring European technocrat bureaucrats are actually way more ambitious. Right, so we're going to move on to, and we'll probably talk more about this later in the show, we're Mm -hmm. going to move on to the second part of the show, which is where we're going to talk about um, your life and work. Mm -hmm. So I just want to start by asking you, which is what I ask everyone who comes on the show, how did you get into kind of progressive politics and and, and writing? Because you trained as a historian, right? Uh Uh-huh. What was your journey from uh, from kind of academia into more kind of popular left wing progressive mm-hmm. writing and 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 speaking? So I studied history in Utrecht here in the Netherlands, and I always wanted to go on and do a PhD. You know, my dream was to become mm. some kind of professor, and then when I was fifty or sixty years old, write the big books about the meaning of life. That was mm. sort of my plan for my life. Now. When I started to do a research master's, which is uh, basically a way to prepare for a PhD, I became more and more frustrated with academia. I became frustrated with the language. It seemed to me that very often people were using a language that was unnecessarily complex, you know, trying to make things mm. more complex than they need to be. This, this happens a lot, I think, in leftist progressive academic discourse. Mm. Sometimes... You know, you studied for hours on a on a particularly difficult text and then suddenly you get it and you're like, well, this could, could have been explained in just a couple of paragraphs, right? So that was one frustration. And the other frustration was that academia these days is so specialized, so hyper-specialized, right? So if you studied history, you would become an expert on, I don't know, Dutch farmers in a very specific region in the north of the Netherlands from 1678 to 1683, but not 84, because that's a very different story, right? (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know, it seemed to me like that was maybe a waste of my time, or that the issues, the problems the world was facing are too pressing, that we 
that we simply don't have the luxury. Now, I'm not, I'm not against specialization. Obviously, my latest book, Humankind, is a book written, you know, by a generalist. I, I look at hmm. psychology and history and anthropology. But what is often just a sentence or a paragraph for me could be four years of work on a PhD for someone else. So obviously, I yeah. couldn't have written the book without all those brilliant specialists. But yeah, I did have the feeling that it hadn't become too specialized. And I didn't want to wait until I was 50 or 60 years old to finally start asking the questions that I was really interested in. So then I moved on to journalism and uh, that wasn't much better. So <laughs> I worked for a year at a left centrist newspaper in the Netherlands called the Volkskrant. I think it's sort of the guardian of the Netherlands. Mm. But yeah, I really had to focus on the news. And I didn't really like the news either because the news is mostly about exceptions. You know, it's about incidents, mm. about sensationist stuff that goes wrong and um, not really the things that are very important. I think if the news would really report on what's important, it would focus on the structural forces that govern our lives. I'm not saying mm. that newspapers don't do that at all, but usually they do it at the back of the newspaper or in the, you know, in the Saturday's newspaper, but not really on the front page. Mm. And then came the moment in my life that I was just incredibly, incredibly lucky because Especially, you know, this moment that I was looking for some other place, a new journalism platform was founded in the Netherlands called The Correspondent. Mm. And um, the slogan was unbreaking the news, ignoring the daily news grind. And we, as the first writers, were basically given the freedom to do whatever we wanted. You know, it's, it was a, was a place in between academia and the traditional journalism. And I could just write an essay once a month. And my editor-in-chief, he's a philosopher called Rob Weinberg, he didn't care uh, what it was about. Mostly he was frustrated when he thought it wasn't long enough, right? So he was like, <laughs> yeah, this is interesting. But 4,000 words, well, maybe you need to make it 5,000. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, it was really the, the dream place for me. And, um, yeah, that, that's very much the luck I had at a very early moment in my career. And I think mm. it explains a lot about the tra trajectory I've followed since then. It's interesting, actually, you've had a relatively similar journey to me. I was also thinking about after my master's doing a PhD and then decided, no, that wasn't for me. And then ended up writing for a kind of more newsy publication before mm -hmm. going to Tribune where I am now to do mm -hmm. more kind of mm -hmm. analytical stuff. Mm -hmm. And yeah, kind of broadly for many of the same reasons, actually. It's interesting. And obviously you then went on to um, write your first book, Utopia for Realists. Now, I remember yes. when this came out because I bought it and read it and it had a big impact on me it was obviously utopia for realists the case for universal basic income open borders and a 15-hour work week why did you pick those three things well i wrote it in 2014 so that's now six years ago mm. and i've become really interested in utopian thinking when i was still a student i studied for a couple of months in ucla in los angeles with a professor called Russell Jacoby, who was very interested in the history and the philosophy of utopian thinking. And I had, you know, come to develop the idea that the problem of our time was not so much that we didn't have it good, at least most of us. I mean, we have made objectively quite a lot of progress since, say, the 1970s, 80s, especially in a rich country like the Netherlands. A lot of people are materially quite wealthy, at least the vast majority of the population. Uh, but the problem in my mind seemed to be that people didn't really know what's next. So we didn't really have mm. a new big utopian vision. After the end of the Cold War, 
there was this idea that history had ended, the famous notion of Francis Fukuyama, uh, the philosopher. And so I also started to believe that the problem with the 2008 financial crash was, was that basically the whole work had not been done. Crises are usually great opportunities for change, but then everything depends, as Milton Friedman once famously said, you know, the neoliberal economist, everything depends on the ideas that are lying around. But then the question is, what were those ideas? I'm not saying that no one had been thinking about them, but there was not a, you know, a well-argued, clear leftist progressive program on what's next. So yeah, that was, was what that book was about. Just thinking about what could those new milestones of civilization be? You know, the end of slavery, democracy, equal rights for men and women. These were all utopian fantasies once. They all started mm. with people who were first dismissed as crazy and ridiculous and unrealistic. So, yeah, what do you have to say right now so that people a century from now will say, well, those were the first people saying it. But mm. back, and back then it was completely unrealistic. But now it has become, you know, just normal part of reality, because that's always what happens with with the utopias, once they become reality, we say, well, that's just, of course, this is just the way we do things and we can't imagine any other way of doing it. So, um, yeah, that book was really about three ideas. The most radical idea, obviously, abolishing borders mm -hmm. and uh, slightly less radical ideas were pretty much abolishing work or at least abolishing the idea of a paid work week, moving to a much shorter working week, as Joe Maynard Keynes, the famous economist, once argued for a 15-hour work week. And the, the least radical idea of all was implementing a universal basic income. And that became the most popular idea. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was also, you know, I was just, just ahead of the wave because in the years after that, the idea of basic income became much more popular. Well, yeah. I mean, arguably, you were a big part of starting that wave. Oh, I, I, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. There was, there was this um, obsession, especially among people in Silicon Valley, with the idea that robots mm. were going to take all jobs. Yeah. Now, I wrote a little bit about that in Utopia Freelist as well. I think actually that's the weakest chapter of the book, if I, if I look back on it. Because, I mean, you should never underestimate capitalism's extraordinary ability to come up with new bullshit jobs, you know? <laughs> Just the yeah. robots take jobs and the capitalists think of new bullshit jobs that don't really need to exist. That can go on indefinitely. Yeah. But uh, that was that was one reason why basic income became more popular. Also in sort of centrist circles. It was one of the reasons I was invited to go to Davos in 2019. Because yes. all these rich people were obsessed with basic income because they thought they were automating all the jobs away. So they thought, well, let's invite this uh, innocent Dutch thought leader, you know, <laughs> and, and see what he has to say about it. That um, appearance that you did at Davos was absolutely brilliant. I really encourage everyone to just to just Google it and watch Rutger laying into the billionaires and millionaires who are watching him just saying, pay your taxes. It was really great. Mm -hmm. But um, I wanted to pick up on something that you were talking about there, really, because you, know, you touched on it a bit at the end. You were attracted to the idea of utopian thinking. Mm -hmm. And whenever I hear kind of utopian thinking, it always makes me think back to some of the stuff that Marx was saying about the utopian socialists at the time. He was mm -hmm. like, oh, these ideas are all great. But what about power? How are we going to get there? And I think that's the interesting point about, you know, you were invited to Davos to talk about it. All those tech billionaires were there saying we need a UBI. We need, you know, to reduce working time. Mm -hmm. Clearly, who implements these ideas matters. And if we're going to kind of build a progressive movement to transform capitalism or, you know, replace capitalism in the interests of 
the many rather mm-hmm. than you know the elites that you were addressing in that um in that speech then that's going to require building power as well as having these utopian ideas right mm-hmm. absolutely i think this is actually the biggest weakness of my work it's at least it's it's the criticism i've i've heard the most is that i i think too little or write too little about power and care too much about ideas so i've been influenced more than someone like John Maynard Keynes in that respect than by than by Marx. Mm. Keynes famously said that it's ideas in the end that prevail. Now, I do think that people who have a more Marxist perspective on history sometimes forget that it's actually people with very little power, with very little money, who in the end prevail. So if you think about it, uh, the suffragettes, uh, did they have, you know, the most power and money to lobby a uh, hundred years ago? Well, uh, probably not. But their idea did prevail in the end. So it quite often, or at least sometimes, it happens that ideas that are completely marginal move into the mainstream. And I've become fascinated, you know, with that mm-hmm. process. How does it actually work? But yeah, it's also very important to think about organizing. So. Um, Sometimes we have our favorite form of activism, right? We say, well, I want to be the person who throws stones at the riot police. And then, no, 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 that's not the good way. You have to write academic tracts on how we change the world. No, 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 that's not a good way. You should lobby and become part of a political party. And that's how you change the world, et cetera, et cetera. Well, actually, maybe we need all of those things, right? Maybe we need... (laughs) Uh, Mm. Martin Luther King's and Malcolm X's, right? Maybe we need Mandela's and people are willing to to, uh, stand up to the right police. I think a lot of people have a role to play in a movement. My role is different from the role of a hyper-specialized academic, but that doesn't mean that the hyper-specialized academic is not necessary. It also doesn't mean that I'm invaluable to the movement, right? We should sort of have a broader perspective. Um, yeah, I actually don't disagree with you on that. I think we often have this quite superficial debate as to like, you know, what drives history, ideas mm-hmm. or uh, or power. And it becomes yeah. kind of silly, right? Because obviously both are important and they feed into each other because you can't build a movement without corralling people based on their commitment to a set of ideas and a set of values, as we've seen over the last kind of couple of yeah, years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and mm. also one thing I've, I used to care less about policy you know, I was more interested in the grand visions. Well, let's abolish the current welfare system and let's mm. implement a universal basic income, right? And I've come to realize more and more that that was actually also intellectually a little bit lazy because it's very hard to understand the specific of the welfare system that is currently in place in mm. the UK or in the Netherlands because these are very complex bureaucratic systems often. But if you want to make actual improvements for people who are suffering, you know, right now, living in poverty right now, then, you know, you help them way more by actually understanding the current system and trying to make small improvements there. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's like a we have to distinguish between incrementalism for incrementalism's sake and, Mm -hmm. you know, policy changes that are going to a make people's lives better and b also kind of shift power in society as well because obviously when you transform the welfare state you're also helping to decommodify human life basically Mm -hmm. which you know gives people more freedom allows them to organize allows them to kind of realize their power so yeah like that 
non-reformist reforms, as Andre Gortz called them, which shift power as well as shifting resources, mm-hmm. yeah, are kind of are, are very important in policy terms. And I certainly think those were significant elements of like, for example, Bernie Sanders's manifesto, like the inclusive ownership funds and things, and to an yeah, extent, yeah, yeah, the yeah. Labour Party's recent, yeah. recent manifesto as well. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be all or nothing. So I think mm. a basic income is interesting. You can make the current welfare state much more basic income-ish by making access to the welfare state more universal, removing conditions, et cetera, et cetera. Basically injecting more trust in the system and not asking people that they prove over and over again that they're really you know, a hopeless case, that they're sick enough, depressed enough, et cetera, et cetera, and mm. only then give them a little bit of money. You can move in the opposite direction. Now, if you've traveled a long time, then maybe you'll arrive at the real basic income. And then it's going to be interesting what will happen. What happens in a society where there's a, a, a real floor in the income distribution and people can basically decide for themselves what they want to do in their lives? Maybe we'll then evolve to a some kind of post-capitalist world. And who knows what that will look like? So I'm, I'm often a little bit frustrated when, you know, you're on a book tour and then you end up with these abstract discussions about, well, is a basic income radical enough? Is that like mm-hmm. what, what Marx have thought about it? And then sometimes, I don't know. I, I've really come to dislike the kind of activism that is more about, I don't know, theoretically being right instead of actually winning. And this is yeah. why I'm so excited about the Sunrise Movement in the US, for example, or the, the whole movement around AOC, because these people are not don't just have good ideas, but they're really pragmatic as well. You mm-hmm. know, they have a clear plan to victory. The book that um, I want to talk about now is one that I think that your the piece of your work that made the biggest impact on me, and it was Humankind. And I actually only read it at the beginning of the pandemic. And it's like quite a big book. I remember I was sent it by um, your publisher, Bloomsbury, <laughs> and it was sitting on my my desk for a while. And I was like, oh, it looks quite big. Am I going to like, you know, pick that up? And I remember picking it up, reading the first chapter, and I was hooked. I then read the whole thing in about two days. Um, it's a truly, truly brilliant book. And I'd really, really encourage everyone to who's listening to read it. But the central premise, and correct me if I'm wrong, is, is basically that people are fundamentally social beings is that right mm-hmm. yeah and, i'd say that they're pretty decent not that yeah. they're naturally good i mean we're not angels but on average most people are pretty decent yeah and um what was so one of the the things that was so interesting about the book is the way that you kind of demolished all of the arguments that i'd learned in kind of like a level psychology mm-hmm. right so the Stanford prison experiment and the Milgram experiment. And you just brought up all these problems that had taken place in those experiments and just the massive bias of the researchers Mm -hmm. and then provided us with all this incredible evidence to the contrary, like the real Lord of the Flies. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and also about why some of those experiments were misleading? Yeah, sure. So let's start with a really old theory in Western culture that comes back again and again. Franz de Waal, uh, the Dutch primatologist, calls it veneer theory. So the idea here is that civilization is only a thin veneer, a thin layer, and that below that you can find real human nature, that people are just selfish beasts, maybe even monsters, and that it's only civilization protecting us from that. This idea, this veneer theory, it comes back again and again and again in Western culture. You know, you find it among the Asian Greeks, 
among the Orthodox church fathers with their idea that we're all born as sinners. You find it with the Enlightenment philosophers, people like uh, Adam Smith, David Hume, Thomas Hobbes, who mm. argued that in the state of nature, there was a war of all against all going on and that our lives were nasty, brutish and short. And it's also embedded at the heart of capitalism, you know, this idea that mm. people are just selfish and that we need to deal with that and design systems around that fundamental truth. Now, what my book is, in the first place, it's basically an attack on veneer theory. And, and I'm trying to show that that theory is fundamentally wrong, that we've got a huge amount of evidence from archaeology, from sociology, from psychology, from anthropology, that basically says, well, it's, it's the other way around. It's actually civilization that is the problem, or it's when powerful rulers say that people are just selfish. That's mm. when things go wrong. So yeah, the, the 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 example that I had the most fun with writing the book is uh, with uh, sort of debunking Lord of the Flies. Now I'm not sure if you can debunk a novel, but <laughs> well, we <laughs> we all know the story, right? Kids shipwreck on an island and uh, quickly start to uh, show monstrous behavior. And I just wondered, has it ever happened? Has there ever been a case of kids shipwrecking on an island? And well, how did they behave in real life? And I could find only one example in all of old history. This was in uh, 1965 near Tonga, an island group in the Pacific Ocean, where, um, yeah, uh, six kids shipwrecked and survived for 50 months. Mm. And then I wondered, maybe I can track them down. I, I found this story in an old newspaper and I realized, well, they should be around 70 years old now. So um, as luck would have it, I uh, was about to go on a book tour to Australia to talk about Utopia Freelists. And I said to my publisher, well, can you, can you give me a week off? Because I need to find a couple of people for a really good story. And I managed to find uh, one of the uh, original Lord of the Flies children and also the captain, who is now 90 mm. years old, who uh, rescued these kids in 1966. And uh, turns out they uh, had uh, become the best of friends. They were really soulmates. Mm. So uh, Mano was, uh, was the one who survived on the island. Peter was the man who... Uh, sort of, well, rescue is not really the right word, sort of found him. I mean, they could have lived there for years if they would have wanted to because they had basically established a, um, a very nice civilization. They mm. survived by working together, by staying friends. Sometimes they ended up in fights. I mean, that happens. They're humans after all. But then one would go to one side of the island. The other would go to the other side of the island. The boys would cool off a little bit, come back and say sorry. And that's how they kept going for 50 months. It's in almost every single way the opposite of the story yeah. that we were told in school. And when you think about it, it really shouldn't be that surprising that human beings have developed to cooperate in order to survive. Because mm -hmm. if it really wasn't a war of all against all, then we wouldn't have lasted very long. Exactly. And that was one of the really interesting things that actually stayed with me. And I repeat all the time in the book, this idea of survival of the cutest <laughs> and how human beings have evolved to look friendly and to kind of develop these friendly behaviors. And also the stuff about what differentiates young children from um, other animals in terms of, you know, intelligence and comprehension and stuff is, is their ability to learn from each other. We literally look friendlier than our ancestors. Hmm. And um, the explanation for this indeed is that friends help you to survive. Mm. You know, modesty was incredibly important arrogance was very dangerous you know imagine donald trump in prehistory you know in, in the ice age when you really needed friends in order to survive well it probably wouldn't have survived for long 
friendship was incredibly important. So it was actually the more friendly people who had more kids and so had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation. In that way, we domesticated ourselves. That's mm. why it's called self-domestication. And this is where it gets most fascinating. If you ask the question, why have we conquered the globe? You know, why have humans conquered the globe? Why are we the species that built cities and pyramids and, you know, flies to the moon? It's not that we're so smart. Individually, we're not very intelligent. If you do an intelligence test and let a human compete with a uh, pig, then often the pigs wins, you know, Uh, (laughs) if you do this with a toddler of around two, three years old. Um, People should keep that in mind when they eat bacon. But uh, if you actually scale up, you know, if, if you see that people are starting to live in larger groups, they become so much more smarter because they learn from each other. And mm. they learn from each other because they are so hyper-connected. You know, they talk to each other all the time. They gossip. And many scientists now believe that this is really what distinguished us from, for, for example, the Neanderthals, who were probably smarter than us. Uh, at least they had larger brains. And usually having bigger brains is a sign of uh, more intelligence, if you look at, um, or more cognitive capacities, at least. But yeah, what the research really suggests to us is that actually intelligence, it's not really an individual phenomenon. It's all, it's a collective yeah. phenomenon, right? So I'm now talking to you uh, through a microphone and I have no idea how this thing works. I'm sitting behind a laptop. It's, I'm totally clueless. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm basically clueless about almost anything in my life, right? Uh, talking about hyper-specialization. Yeah. We are extraordinarily incompetent, almost, yeah, well, pretty much all of us, right? If we would be dropped in a hunter-gatherer environment you know (laughs) most of us would die very quickly but that is actually our superpower that we that we just rely on one another which again i mean evolutionary anthropology provides the perfect scientific and philosophical basis for a socialist view of the world yeah because all this interdependence basically means that you can't really say this is mine or you know i deserve this because, you know, the, the whole argument of merit just, it, 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 you should completely, we can completely destroy it and, and, and cast it away because no one deserves anything. The only thing that you contribute is like 0.0000001%. You know, we're all incredibly privileged and we're all dependent on those around us and on the people who came before us and who developed all these technologies and languages and you name it. So that's basically my message to those of, on the left. Don't be afraid of evolutionary anthropology. You know, it has a lot to offer. I think that was the thing that just really stuck out to me the most about the book was just how important your research is for providing the kind of foundational case for socialism because mm-hmm. so much of the time you know you make arguments about like we need to democratize society we need to give people more power you know we need to control our resources collectively rather than letting a small elite do so on our behalf and mm-hmm. people say oh but people are just bad you know um everyone's competing with each other all the time look at all the terrible things that human beings have done to each other mm-hmm. and your book obviously completely you know puts that perspective out of the water but how would you respond to and you, you talk about this a bit in the book to you know the fact that human beings do wage war against each other we do show often you know quite antisocial competitive behaviors especially in situations that have that encourage competitiveness so in the mm-hmm. workplace and in you know sports and all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. well this is obviously the big question that hangs over my book 
how can anyone ever argue that we have evolved to be friendly when at the same time we are the cruelest species in the animal kingdom? Mm. We do things that no other animal would ever dream or think of doing, right? Mm. Uh, wars, ethnic cleansing, genocides. These are all, the, all you know, uniquely human phenomena. And uh, yeah, obviously... You know, this is one of the ironies of writing a book like this. You have to go on for hundreds of pages about all the dark <laughs> chapters in human history. Uh, not to explain them away, but what I'm trying to do is to give a more layered explanation. Mm. I think that veneer theory is a very superficial explanation. You ask the question, why the Holocaust? And then the answer is, well, because people are bad. That's just what we do, right? And then human goodness becomes the real mystery to explain. What I'm trying to do is to give a more layered explanation where actually there's a real connection between our friendliness and the atrocities. Because if you look at wars and genocides, what you find is that very often they're committed in the name of loyalty and in the name of friendship and of groupishness, right? We want to be loyal to our own group. And um, that is an important part of the puzzle. I've got one chapter in the book about the question why the... German soldiers in 1944 and 1945 kept fighting so hard, even though it was mm. clear they were going to lose the war. And back then, many psychologists, allied psychologists, believed that they must have been brainwashed. Mm. But then they started interviewing prisoners of war and discovered that actually almost all of these soldiers were not fighting, you know, because they were ideological maniacs, but they were fighting for their friends. You know, it was kamaradschaft, mm. comradeship. That was the most important force that kept them going. Um, and this is obviously uh, something that you encounter so often, whether you talk about, you know, terrorism or wars, etc., is that uh, we do the most horrible things when we, when we think we're doing the right thing. It's sort of the joker, I mean, does exist. There are sadists out there who just enjoy violence, but that's highly, highly unusual, highly mm. unusual. So, yeah, I, I'm trying to give a, a more layered explanation of how that happens, which is quite uncomfortable, by the, by the way. This is also something that many activists will recognize, is that very often friendliness is actually the problem, Yeah. right? Friendliness is often a defense of the status quo. It means that yeah. you're not going to raise your voice. It means that you're, you're worried about standing out. So this is, a, this is the paradox embedded at the heart of my book, that I'm arguing on the one hand that people have evolved to be friendly, but that on the other hand, if we want to make progress, then often we need to be a little bit unfriendly. There's a crucial point in there as well about the kind of design of institutions, because there are a lot of people in capitalist societies who are not psychopaths, but who behave in ways that if you took them out of any you know, out of that context would seem psychopathic. You know, you're thinking about the decisions that are made at the tops of many big organizations and financial institutions that have, you know, generated huge amount of of suffering, whether you're thinking mm. about you know, the, mm. the period of running up to the financial crisis or um, corporate scandals that we've seen throughout history. Mm -hmm. So clearly there is something about the way that we design our social institutions that brings out a particular side of us. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's possible to design institutions premised on cooperation, on accountability. That thing that you said at the beginning about how arrogance was once punished by the mm. group and instead mm. other, other traits were rewarded. Do you think it's possible to design institutions today that would reflect that? 
if you if you would ask me the question, what makes the social democratic countries, you know, the Scandinavian countries, and I think the Netherlands is quite similar to Sweden and Denmark here, what makes them one of the best places to live in the world? Uh, and I'm not saying they're perfect, but I, I, mm-hmm. I would say Bernie Sanders was obsessed with Denmark for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's it's not just the you know the institutional circumstances, the laws, the procedures, the welfare state. I think there's a deeper cultural reason. And the cultural reason is just this egalitarianism, is that in these countries, success is a crime, right? You there's this, this really important modesty that I mean, I experienced this as an author, and it's it's not always fun to experience, but I think it's a good thing that we just don't like people who stand out too much. In the Netherlands, this is called hayfield culture. So as soon as you stick out, right, we mm. chop off your head. In yeah, Denmark, it's syndrome, we yeah, call it. Yeah. Mm. In, in Denmark, it's called Jantus Law. I think they have a specific term for it in Sweden as well. And um, it often reminds me of this nomadic and togetherer culture, the reverse dominance hierarchy, where people are just incredibly dis- distrustful of elites because mm. they understand the power corrupts. And, uh, you know, sometimes that process is a little bit nasty. You know, sometimes uh, the public is a little bit too aggressive when they uh, try to keep those at the top in check. But it's better than not having that. What I think is is very interesting about um, the the way that you just described that is to me, it seems like what you're talking about is cultures that are more individualistic versus more social and communitarian. Mm -hmm. And I think an interesting thing is that, you know, American culture, perhaps you could argue, has this strain of kind of rugged individualism very Mm -hmm. rooted in it as as part of the American dream. Also, contrary to that, has a very strong kind of communitarian element to it. Mm -hmm. I would say that this form of kind of rampant individualism has historically been less rooted in British society, Mm -hmm. but was deliberately drawn out throughout particularly the 1980s when you had a series mm. of political projects that were not just aimed at kind of you know promoting individual achievement and you know individual wealth and all those sorts of things but actually at crushing the social institutions that had previously been used to hold elites to account so particularly the, the labor movement but also kind of you know community movements and various social movements and that seems like a really important thing that if we are going to be able to like hold these very, very powerful people to account, we need to have social institutions. We need to build those forms of solidarity mm-hmm. that allow us to work together to kind of combat this individualism, which is really kind of, you know, as you say, it's like a virus afflicting our societies and making us turn away from our, our true natures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And and obviously the question, what comes first, culture or institution, is a bit, mm. you know, nonsensical. Obviously, it can happen both ways. But yeah, I think I have a, a very double message here. On the one hand, I think we need to be way more trusting of most of the people around us, right? So we should mm. design our institutions around trust, our systems of social security, our democracy, the workplace. I think we can move to a much more egalitarian democratic system mm. um, because that's basically the implication of a more hopeful view of human nature. If you buy into veneer theory, if you buy the Habesian argument that people are just selfish and if you give them freedom, they'll start fighting and, you know, they enter a war of all against all. Well, that's a legitimization of hierarchy. Mm. Then we need kings and queens and chief executive officers and managers to make sure that, you know, we survive, that our civilization is protected. 
If that's not actually true, if it's the other way around, if most people can be trusted, then why do we have all these CEOs? Why do we have all those managers? Why do we need career politicians? Maybe maybe we don't need that. Maybe people can organize their own affairs and, mm. and, and we can move to a much, very different form of what I would call a genuine democracy because we what we have now is obviously very far removed from democracy. Yeah. We have sort of, well, I call it an elective aristocracy. We are yeah. in very limited circumstances choose to allow to choose our own aristocrats. But even then, I mean, if, if I, you know, again, from a Dutch perspective, if I look at the British system, and, and this is even truer, if I look at the American system, you know, it's, I mean, what is that? You can choose between, you have two options? Yeah. <laughs> How can anyone think that is a democracy? <laughs> from the Dutch perspective, you look at the British and the American system and think like, why are people not revolting every day in the streets against this because this this and and both on the right and on the left i mean yeah. what was it with ukip at some point they had like 10 15 of the vote and like one seat mm. or, the, or the green party i mean how frustrating must it be to be young and to try and change things through the current system and that you can't that you just have to join labor and then you get that's also my perspective of all the fights between labor i mean in any same political system all these people wouldn't be in the same political party right right well that is all we have time for thank you so much Rutger Bregman for joining me on A World to Win thanks Grace thanks for having me